0: up in the very wee hours this morning and realized I'm pretty sure I caught a stomach bug from the Roberts children. I'm not blaming Justin or Sam or anything, I promise. But um, at around six, I was like, Alex, I don't know if I'm going to be able to preach or not. And he was like, oh, dear God. Uh, And so he panicked for about two hours this morning for me to like take a little nap and be like, I can do this. But um, I... uh, don't have any food on my stomach. I am trying to guzzle down water best I can, and I have had no caffeine. That's the biggest problem here. Uh, I've had no coffee, so uh, I warn you now. We'll see how today goes, uh, but this is Cassie, no coffee. You have seen her. Um, actually, funny enough, this morning, Alex, when I was like, I think I can do this, he goes, well, if Patty, can make it through an ankle sprain, Cassie can make it through a sermon, and I was like, yeah, so Patrick Mahomes has given me some inspiration today, Uh, I'm just kidding, anyway, uh, really quickly here, I want to just take a few moments to read through a couple scripture verses, and as I read through these, I want you to decide if you can detect a theme. John 14, verses 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John chapter 15 verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 15 verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. John chapter 16 verses 23 through 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until you have asked nothing in my, until now you have asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. When we examine the scriptures, this is just a tiny snapshot, but when we examine the scriptures, we find that Jesus promises over and over and over and over and over again that all we have to do is ask and we'll receive. And this is probably the point in the sermon where you're like, yeah, hoorah, right? Like, Cassie, give it to us. Like, all we gotta do is ask. Come on, we're gonna receive, right? Um, But if I'm being totally honest, these scriptures, this idea is both wonderful and simultaneously infuriating to me. Like, on one hand, I want uh, a God, right, who loves me, who would promise me such a thing. Like, all I have to do is ask him, and he's going to give it to me. But on the other hand, I'm really annoyed by some of these statements, Because if I'm honest, I just don't always believe them to be true. Like, I've had moments in life where I've asked, and I don't feel like I've received. I think of my dad, who uh, was a professional French horn player, actually, in the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra for over 35 years. Uh, He suffered a lip injury about five years ago, and uh, it has left him at the point now where he's on disability. He can't play anymore for the symphony. And I can't tell you how many times I prayed that God would heal my dad, and I just didn't receive that healing on the way that I wanted to. I think of right before Christmas, you know, you're in that wonderful, like a bit, like bliss of just Christmas cheer, right? You're gearing up. It's that week of Christmas. I'm ready for all of the baking, the festivities, and I get a call. My best friend's mom in Cincinnati. She has passed away of cancer. We've prayed for her for years. She's battled and she didn't make it. I prayed and I didn't receive her healing in the way that I wanted to. Uh, A more silly example, or maybe it's not that silly. At least it doesn't always feel very silly. Um, I think of my own personal desire to own a home, like every millennial out there, right? Like, oh, I just wanna buy a house. Why is this so hard? And I've prayed, and I've prayed, and I've prayed a lot about it. And we don't have one yet. This tension sits at the very core of why many of us have just simply given up on praying for what we need. Like, if God disappointed me once, won't he just disappoint me again? If God didn't answer my prayer before, what's the point in asking? If God's ways are somehow higher than my ways, what's the point in praying for what I need? Does he even care? And this is why I think some of us, myself included, have just kind of given up on the whole idea of petitioning God for our wants and our needs. But as we're going to see today, petitioning, is still a worthwhile task. If you would uh, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11 or if you want to scroll on your phone you can use that QR code to get to our liturgy today Uh, we're gonna center ourselves in Luke chapter 11 what Alicia read for us this morning and if you haven't been with us over the last couple weeks uh, you may not know that we're in a teaching series called teach us to pray and we get this title for this series from this particular scripture passage In which uh, Jesus and the disciples are hanging out, and the disciples look at Jesus and they say, Lord, there's something different about the way that you pray. Like, there's just something different. Like, you talk to God differently, you listen differently, you acknowledge his presence differently, and also things happen when you pray. So, Lord, teach us to pray. And in response, Jesus responds with arguably one of the most famous prayers in all of history, the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer teaches us a few things, and we've been discovering these along our sermon series. The first one is this, is that although we recite the Lord's Prayer, and that is an important thing to do, uh, we also use it as a guideline or a pattern for our own prayers. This is the prayer that we go to when we say, Lord, how do we pray? Like, help us. I don't know how to do this. How do we pray? Secondly, the Lord's Prayer reveals that prayer is not just simply communication. It's not just heaping up empty phrases and words in God's direction as Jesus refers to the Gentiles in Matthew. It's much more than just communication. It's both communion and collaboration with God. First and foremost, communion. When we approach this prayer, we're first asked to acknowledge Father in heaven, to acknowledge the closeness, the love that exists between a father and a child in a moment, the prayer is simply learning to commune with our Father, to recognize his presence. And then it is also, as Alex discussed last week, a means for collaborating with God. Many of us may think that we're just passive set pieces in this cosmic world, right? But God actually tells us, he creates us to be people that co-labor with him that have a job and a duty in the forming and the remaking of our world and its ability to be set right. Prayer is both communion and collaboration. And finally, this prayer reminds us that the essential foundation of all of Christian prayer is God is love and he likes us. And it's with that foundation that God the Father, who loves us, who likes us, the who of prayer that we can learn how to truly ask God for what we need. And so today, in week three of our series, we're focusing on petitioning, or that component of Jesus's prayer, give us this day our daily bread, or how Luke writes it, give us each day our daily bread. You know, the Lord's Prayer is not the only place in which we see bread or food as a central component in Jesus' life. In fact, uh, many could summarize the entire Gospel of Luke as Jesus going to, being at, and coming from dinners. And for those of us that like food, it's like, hallelujah, Jesus, right? Uh, In fact, he ate and drank so much that the Pharisees or the religious elite of his day actually called him a glutton and a drunk. Yeah, did you know that? Yeah, he was accused of being a glutton and a drunk because he attended so many parties. And despite his naysayers, Jesus continues to stick with this strategy. He continues to eat and drink with the weirdest of people tax collectors, prostitutes, beggars, and he deliberately says, this is the kingdom of God coming to earth. The kingdom of God is a table laid out with the wealthiest of bounties, and all who have wish to eat and drink are invited. In the words of N.T. Wright, his parties weren't simply a matter of cracking open another bottle for the sake of it. And similarly, Jesus doesn't just include bread in this prayer for the sake of including it. No. It's part of a much wider and deeper agenda. At the very heart of this demonstration-turned-teaching sits a foundational biblical symbol of the kingdom of God, and it can be traced all the way back to the Israelite people in the Old Testament. This idea of bread and a table and a feast should remind us of the Israelite people who are coming out of Egypt. God promises, I will provide you a houseless people with milk and honey. Similarly, when these Israelite people are in the desert, God provides them manna and quail when they are at their neediest. This idea of a feast or a banquet as the kingdom of God should remind us of the psalmist's words when it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, my cup overflows. It should call to mind the words of prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6 through 8, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of aged wines and he will destroy on this mountain the shroud all over all people he will swallow up death forever he will wipe away the tears from all faces and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth this feast this banquet this party reminds us that God is finally acting like he's chosen to show up and begin revealing his kingdom. Thus, Jesus' eating habits and the mention of bread in this prayer acts as a reminder that God is coming to end sorrow. That God is coming to wipe away every tear. That God is coming to create a world in which no need goes unmet. In which no one is hungry. In which everyone has more than enough to eat. Give us each day our daily bread reminds us of a kingdom in which every day we will have daily bread and plenty of it. And this leads us to our first point for today. When we pray for our daily bread, we petition God for his soon and coming kingdom. It's as if we're praying, Lord, may the feast you began in your ministry continue. May the feeding of the five and the 4,000 continue. May the Lord's Supper continue May the feast on the beach with Peter continue, Lord, keep the party going. This type of petition reminds me of Jesus' words when he says in John chapter 16, verse 33, I have told you these things that in me you may have peace, because in this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have come, I am coming to overcome the world." This world, although extremely imperfect, still marred by many things, like sickness and cancer and financial suffering and hum, hum, excuse me, hunger, this world is very imperfect. But Jesus says, "My feast is going to continue. It's coming." I'm coming to overcome, and I'm actively overcoming the world. See, part of our petition for personal needs is, Jesus, come and make this world right. Come and make my world right. Set it to rights, God. May the party continue. May the feast continue. I want to experience the fullness of it. So in those moments when we are experiencing sadness, doubt, the frustrations that come when we wonder, God, are you really there? May this urgency drive us to petition God once again for his feast, for his soon and coming kingdom. However, this verse, give us each day our daily bread, is not just about petitioning God for his kingdom. As important as that is, that is only one part. Notice the key words here, each day. These words give us a clue that this, this sentence is not merely one-dimensional, but that it's two. It's got two meanings, not just one. Jesus, although very concerned about his soon-and-coming kingdom, is also extremely concerned with our personal and physical needs. How wonderful it is, right, that we have a God, that we know a God who does not look down on our needs from this throne in heaven, snickering at our poor, pathetic, needy bodies, but he looks at us and he says, what do you need? How can I help? And this is what leads us to our second point for today. When we pray for our daily bread, we petition God for our very deepest and most personal of needs. Here's where things get a little difficult, though. Because if I'm being honest, and maybe if we're all being honest, uh, we don't know how to ask God for our needs, right? And oftentimes when we do, it feels like we're going about it in the totally wrong way. Like we find ourselves like kind of taking back our words and being like, oh, not my will, but your will, God. And I don't know, should I ask for this? Should I not? Petitioning for our own needs is difficult. And I think it's difficult for a few reasons. Uh, three specific issues um, that plague maybe even us just specifically as American Western Christians as a consumeristic culture right so we're going to attach each of these issues and hopefully gain a little insight on how to petition God for our personal needs issue number one we are really proud and independent we are really proud and independent Um, So Alex and I like to say the church planning process has probably been one of the most humbling things we've ever experienced in our life. Uh, When you go out to plant a church, you have a lot of needs and you have to make a lot of asks. Um, And Alex and I specifically, when we moved here in 2020, uh, you know, we're not obviously making a whole lot of money. Uh, We're working really hard to make this church uh, happen with our team to launch it. And we start experiencing, like, some of the most ridiculous car issues, like, Really, really ridiculous, and they're like compounded one on top of another, off another, off another, and this car is like not old, and it only has like 160,000 miles on it. I'm like, what is wrong with this car? Uh, and it got so bad at one point that I was talking to my mom on the phone, and she was joking like, oh, maybe there's a demon in your car. And I kid you not, I literally considered going and like laying hands on my car because I was like, God, what am I gonna do about this car? It's falling apart. It shouldn't be. And I remember we like spent all this money, like thousands of dollars, guys, on this car. And it's supposed to be working great, right? And we get outside one February morning in like early 21, and uh, we go to start the car, and it doesn't turn on. And I'm like, what in the world? Why is this car not turning on? What is going on? And at this point, Alex is like very... Angry, which if you know Alex, he does not get angry like at all. So, you know, we've like reached a level here where Alex is mad. And I am like a ball of like frustration and anxiety. And I'm like trying to problem solve. And I'm like, how are we going to pay for this? And ah, we've drained our savings and all these things. And so, you know, finally we probably get around to like actually doing something productive and praying. But uh, the next day, uh, Alex and I go to hang out with my brother in law and my sister in law, Alex's brother. And uh, the woman that he married, and uh, we love them desperately. And um, they'd slide over a check, and it covered like everything we had spent on the car up to that point, plus what we needed. And I was stunned. I was like, "Oh my goodness!" And obviously, I'm so grateful. I'm so thankful. They didn't fool. Like they knew we had had some like car trouble. They knew we were like really pinching pennies. But they didn't know the details. And it was totally a God thing. And we're you know so excited. We're praising God. This is amazing. But if I'm being really honest, there is a very small part of me that was like, "Man, I'm embarrassed." Like I'm super annoyed that my financial needs were exposed. It's not really a fun place to be in to have to like accept handouts. Like, yikes. And as ugly as that sounds, I think many of us experience that same kind of shame when it comes to professing our very needs to God. If I'm being really honest, I'm too prideful to admit that I need anything. I'm too independent that independent to recognize that I could rely on anything or anyone, let alone God. This culture that we've been raised in, this consumeristic, individualistic Western culture, it tells us to just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, right? The asking for help is a weakness. And I think many of us, myself included, have let our independence and our pride keep us from being vulnerable enough to approach God and say, I really need blank. It's really easy to ask God for the spiritual stuff, right? Like, God, help me love my neighbor more. God, help me love you more. God, help me love my spouse more and my kids more. And those are beautiful things. But it's so much harder for us to actually ask God for our daily bread, for our stomach. For our deepest desires, the things that require true vulnerability and transparency. For there is no need more basic, more vulnerable, more shameful than bread. I guarantee you there is no human being on earth who enjoys begging for money or food at an intersection. And yet Jesus instructs us to pray... Give us each day our daily bread. The Bible is actually full of stories of people asking for their deepest, rawest, like most selfish even desires and God answering them. Uh, We see Naomi who longed for a husband for Ruth. And as like beautiful as that may sound on the outset, like she really needed some financial security, right? She needed some financial backing so that she could actually exist in this very conservative Jewish society. And God not only answers that prayer, he makes her part of the lineage of Jesus as Ruth becomes the great-grandmother to David and David becomes a descendant of Jesus. We see Hannah who desperately cries out to God over and over and over and over again for a child, crying, blubbering, spending hours, days, shamefully prostrating herself before God. And what does God do? He gives her a son. He not only gives her a son, he gives her Samuel, who ends up being one of the most well-known prophets in all of Israelite history. We see the Canaanite woman, right, in the Gospels, who comes to Jesus begging, shamefully so, so much so that she embarrasses the disciples, saying, Lord, heal my daughter, And what does Jesus do? He heals. Give us each day our daily bread reminds us that our natural longings, our deepest desires for financial security, for a child, for healing, Yes, even for bread, are not to be shunned or written off as evil, selfish, embarrassing, or shameful. But rather, these desires are welcomed by God. And as we bring them to God, we trust him to order them to open our eyes so that we may see him. May we shirk our independence and our pride, these things that so often creep into our heart and embrace the very innocence, the natural vulnerability of a child coming to their father and saying, I need. Issue number one, our pride and independence. Issue number two, we tend to worry in God's direction. Largely, the problem is not that we ask for bread, but that we always start there. If we don't begin with Father in heaven and your kingdom come, we generally present all of our hopes, our desires, our stresses, and our struggles as a messy and jumbled heap before God. Right? C.S. Lewis actually calls this steaming in the presence of God or steam of consciousness. For example, myself included, I often begin a lot of my prayers with, God, I'm so stressed. God, I need a break from all of this. I can, cannot believe that this is happening to me again. God, why do I keep getting let down over and over again? Why is life so disappointing? Why does this always happen to me? It's hopeless, God. What am I going to do? Now, please hear me. There is nothing wrong with these types of prayers, There's nothing wrong with steaming in the presence of God. In the words of N.T. Wright, if you feel as though you're boiling over, at least have the grace to come and do it in the presence of your Father in heaven. Right? There's nothing wrong with these types of prayers. But if you always start here, Like if this is your general pattern of prayer, if every time you pray it's something like this, you might have some disordered prayers. You might find that you're simply just worrying in God's direction. Might I invite you instead to simply engage in the pattern that God has given us? the pattern that the Lord's Prayer outlines. Start with God as Father, right? Simply be reminded of his love for you as a child. Begin engaging in contemplative prayer to breathe in and breathe out, acknowledging that God is right there with you. Begin turning your attention to intercessory prayer. Your kingdom come to be reminded of the needs of others. And then finally, we turn to ourselves. And you might just begin to notice that your petitions, the profession of the deepest desires of your heart, begin to shift and change a little. That they're no longer a mess of jumbled emotions, but deeply rooted desires as God helps you sort out your heart and provide answers and comfort. So first, that pride, that independence. Second, we struggle with just worrying God's direction. And lastly, we neglect to turn Outward. It's time to acknowledge the really big elephant in this room. Most of us, as Americans, living in a developed country, have bread. Most of us are fortunate enough to have our most basic of needs met. Water, food, clothing, and shelter. But there are many who pray this prayer in our neighborhood, down the block, in the city, and especially in our world, who are quite literally praying this prayer literally. People who do not know where their next meal is going to come from, who do not have the comfort and promise of their daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. It's not symbolic to many. It is very literal. And the question then remains, like, what do we do, right? Do we feel guilty? Do we never ask for needs of our own? Do we simply always forego ourselves in light of the hungry? And the short answer to this is no. We've seen over and over again Jesus consistently asks us to pray for what we need, right? Right? that he desires to know our deepest desires, for us to be vulnerable and selfish before him, to express what we want so dearly. But that does not mean that we should not act, and that does not mean that we should not pray. Alex, in the next two weeks, in the last sermon of this series, will talk talk to us about how we act. But for the sake of today... We need to remember to pray. We don't just merely pray for the hungry, but we work to pray with the hungry. That's what it means to be the royal priesthood of believers that First Peter 2 verse 5 refers to. We work to widen our gaze, to turn our eyes from inward to outward. As we recite the Lord's Prayer and pattern our prayers around it, we stand with a wider family of God, praying on behalf of the hungry, and in a sense, standing with them. And in doing so, we not only collaborate with God in the changing of the world, but you're going to begin to notice something. Your desires, your personal petitions, they get shaped by the outward. You may find that your petitions for the bigger house or the newest car, or the six-figure salary are a bit disordered in the light of those who are hungry and in need. Maybe we find our very souls to be changed by simply looking outward. Worship team, if you want to go ahead and join me. As evidenced by the sermon, we experience a lot of challenges when it comes to petitioning God for our needs. We doubt, right? We doubt in his very character as our loving God. We're affected by the marred nature of this world, the already but certainly not yet kingdom of God. We're affected by our own independence and pride, which keeps us from appearing before God as a vulnerable child, saying, God, I need. We suffer from our own propensity to simply just worry in God's direction, to always start with bread instead of adhering to the pattern given to us in the Lord's Help us pray. prepared.